The views expressed in our episode are ours alone and do not represent any other organizations. Our episodes discuss internet crimes against children and cases that involve the exploitation of children and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Yeah, we don't want to do anything to scare your children. That's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to scare anybody. Everybody, welcome to Catfish Cops. I'm Tony Godwin. I'm Brandon Poor. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, it's been a it's been a minute, but uh, that's our first. Where have we been? Oh man, we've been like crazy. I know we've been crazy busy. I've been crazy busy. I know you have as well. So we yeah, have- so it's been sadly we don't want to skip out on episodes, but. When we are in the midst of things. So after Dr. Burke's episodes, we kind of took a minute to let those soak in. And then we have been really slammed at work, right? Oh, yeah, man. Like like one particular week, I, I think I worked until late hours every night the whole week. Just a couple of crazy things came up. And um, <clears throat> this is our first time to do the new bumper. What do you what do you think? I love it. I think it's awesome. I think it sounds um, like we're trying to sound more professional, but it makes (laughs) us sound like we're doing a movie. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just to let the listeners know, like I literally tripped across this guy's TikTok (laughs) and I saw him doing these movie intros and all these things. And um, like, yes, we should give him some credit. Where, where can people go watch him? Yeah. Brent Hagel is his name. And he's got a bunch of, uh, he's, he's all over TikTok. If you type in Brent Hagel, H-A-G-E-L, you're going to see his, uh, you know, his TikTok, obviously, with tons and tons and tons of things that he did. And so it's kind of cool where when I was watching him and he was doing that real dramatic voice and everything, and I was like, man, that would be so cool for ours. I wonder if he'll do that for us. <clears throat> so I reached out to him and we phone tagged a little bit and then, uh, you know, over email, but um we graciously paid him for his work and, and, uh, very happy to have that. Cause it's super, super cool. I think. Graciously. Yeah. <laughs> it makes us sound so benevolent. Huh? Well, uh, we I'm just saying, or we, <clears throat> we were happy to pay him for sure. Yeah. Um, Cause that's his, that's his work. That's his livelihood. So yeah, he actually, um, did several things. So you'll hear a couple of them. Um, one of the things we wanted to add was, um, when we talk about something in the news or when we give a um, parental tip or something like that, or when we have a section, we're going to add that to our, to our episode. So yep. uh, speaking of about to hear in, in the news, what, what do we have in the news today? <laughs> What's in the news? Well, Brandon, you did something really cool the other day. Uh, got to be on TV, yeah. right? Tell everybody I've been in the news. Uh, well, I mean, honestly, like, we're aware that we have faces for radio, um, and I think I proved that in the press conference. But we did—I um, did get the opportunity to 
uh, work with the governor's office here in the great state of Texas. And the governor's office has la- launched um, and they are um, partnering with the McCain Institute out of Arizona to launch uh, what's called the Real Campaign. And essentially, it's the Real Friends Don't Let um, Friends Send Nude Images or Real Friends Don't Ask for Sexually Explicit Images campaign. And so it's a campaign to teach kids and empower kids to protect themselves online. So and cool. So I got to go out and speak. And you did a great job. I uh, saw a little clip of it on the news and everything looked really good. I didn't get to attend, but uh, you did great. So well, I appreciate it. Yeah. That, they, they asked a bunch of questions about, you know, what we talk about kind of on here. So if you're a listener to our podcast, you don't have to go look for the news story because you hear it on here all the time. That's what we discuss on here is how to protect uh, your kids. But obviously our governor's office and the people who work in that office are um, really about stopping online exploitation, stopping trafficking, uh, and a whole host of things that we talk about on here a lot. So, well, that's a familiar campaign too. You know, the, the friends don't let friends, you know, drive drunk or use internet explorer or whatever. (laughs) Some of the ones, (laughs) some of the ones we've heard many times over the years. Yeah. So, and then in other news, um, one of our dear friends, Sonia is here in Texas. So she is, um, starting work here and I'm not going to give away anything because I know we, we said we wouldn't. Um, until she gets to break the news, but she is exciting things in absolutely, in yeah, working on big things. It's going to be very, very cool. So cool to have her here, and, and you know what's crazy is like we, we haven't even had a chance to link up with her yet since she's been back. But um, <clears throat> she did send us a video of a truck that she got, which is slightly scary because you know she's from Australia and they drive on the wrong side of the road so it is no she says that a lot of our laws are the same so i have seen her one time um since she's been back uh and got to spend a little bit of time saying hi to her but she said that a lot of our laws and rules and regulations for driving are very similar they're just on the opposite side of the road so she <laughs> said it's very natural um <laughs> but i told her in that big old truck i don't think it's going to matter because she can pretty much do whatever she wants on the roadway. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll give the respect that she deserves and not uh, tell everybody what she calls that truck with uh, to us. <laughs> yes, she got yeah, a funny that's, little I almost term said for it, it. Didn't I? Yeah, well, I I almost did too. That's why I was like, oh, yeah, maybe we better not do that. But yeah, it'll be good to, when she finally gets to come and announce, you know, what's going on. It's going to be just like anything else she does, humongous and very successful. I have no doubt yep. about that. Absolutely. All right. So. So today. Yep. Today we're going to start. Right. Yep. We're going to start with one of mine. This is from um, back in 2010. This one's a little different. Now we've mentioned, I think, some of the things that this case relates to, but I don't know if we've actually done an actual episode on this. So this may be something completely new, but. The title of staring at this. So, so what you don't see is Tony put a picture of this gentleman and I use that term lightly, um, put a picture of him. So he's staring back at me almost though he is like looking at us in a picture (laughs) and I'll be honest, he looks a lot like many of the other people we have arrested before. Tony, why is that? I I don't know if it's just the look. Uh, I don't know if they just all start to blend together. I really don't. And I, for me, 
because we always give a randomly assigned name. And for this episode, uh, this gentleman's name is John Brooks. And so obviously not his real name. We just use our cool name generator to spit one out. But I gave you John Brooks. It gave me you know John the Brooks. Significance of that, right? No, please John tell Brooks me. Brooks is one of the lead characters in a very well-known book called Little Women. Oh well, I can't <laughs> say that May I've ever generated this name. Oh well, I'm I'm sorry what? for the character in that book. It's no relation. I had no knowledge. This does of that. not look like a John Brooks. This 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 looks like John Brooks creepy old pedophile grandfather. So <laughs> yeah, I put the photos in my notes because like I, I tend to lose track. I never want to mix up and say the wrong name. Um, so that's why I do it, but just gives me a little reference, little point of reference, but this one goes back to 2010. And so this episode really concerns an area where most of our law enforcement colleagues are operating day in and day out. And that's file sharing. You know, basically, and I don't know, have we, Brandon, have we done a file sharing episode yet? No, I don't think so. That This is exciting because this gives us a whole new area of things to discuss with our listeners who are always looking for ways to protect the kids that they know. And yep. this is one of those things that we, you and I, and our colleagues deal with quite a bit. Like, you know, the number of times we've gone on file sharing cases, but I don't think we've ever talked about one on here. Yeah. So I guess we're going to just for the sake of argument of being able to describe what it is, um, is there are free publicly available platforms and there are a bunch of them where you can go online and a lot of people, normal people will download music or movies or photos or, you know, whatever it is they want. Um, obviously we're not the copyright police. So we do see a lot of, you know, infringements on, copyright things with related to music, because if, if, for example, you know, Garth Brooks released a brand new album, you could find it on a file sharing site today. <laughs> like if it came out today, you could find it on there today. Now, obviously that's a pirated version and something that, <clears throat> you know, one isn't legal because I don't think Garth Brooks gets any, you know, monetary benefit from that. But also um, there's a lot of things that get transmitted along file sharing programs that relate to child sex abuse material. And so a bunch of agencies, um, ours included, uh, we use specific tools that allow us to look for what we would call targets of interest. You, you think that's an average way to describe it or anything you want to add to that? Uh, no, I, th well, I'm, I will, <laughs> I say no. And then I add to it. Um, we call these peer to peer platforms. Yep. Um, and the tools we use are specific to law enforcement, so they are not the publicly available. We won't give away or tell anything about those tools um, because those tools are something that we want to keep uh, confidential to protect the integrity of these investigations. Right. But I will speak a little bit about this platform um, because as everything you know, in our, our world, we talk about internet and and social media apps and phones and computers, and they are all good things that can be used for um, good and legitimate purposes. So this is no different than that. Like the peer-to-peer -peer platforms are used to, you know, um, get publicly available things too. So it's not just illegal copyrighted stuff. Sometimes things are shared from one person to another. So if Tony and I, just to kind of 
give you an illustration and, and maybe you're going to do this, Tony. So if I'm jumping ahead, please tell me, but no, go ahead. if Tony and I were on this platform together and I had, um, a copy of a song that I really liked and Tony wanted it, he could search for that song. And since I own it and I am making it available for sharing, he can download that. Well, peer-to-peer is designed rather than him downloading something directly from me, which may take several hours or days, he can download it from you know me and 40,000 other people who have the same song making it available. And each of us will give a tiny little piece so he can pull that song in a relatively short amount of time. And that's the benefit of, of peer-to-peer. Yep. That's why it's called peer-to-peer, because it is a peer, a person, um, sharing with another peer. Yeah. And so just to clarify, when, when Brandon says this is a person, it is an actual person that puts this into this publicly available, um, you know, platform and in their shared folder to be available. But from what we see on the law enforcement side, it's, it's, they're just numbers. They're all just numbers. And if, if Brandon and I were strangers and we were going to share that song, I wouldn't see his name, Brandon poor offering me this video. I would just see a number. And likewise, he would see that I've connected to him to get this piece of the file. <clears throat> so and it's, it's not me. I wouldn't reach out directly to Tony and say, give me this file. The program does that for us. It it goes yeah. out to all of these people. So if you're on this platform, and I mean, we're sort of being secretive, but a lot of these platforms on the publicly available side are very common. Oh, yeah. So it used to be... Um, you know, like the Napster and the, the LimeWire, and then it's become a whole bunch of others. And But it's it's not one person saying, give me this. It is anyone on there is making it available. And so that's why they call it a give-to-get environment. It's yep. you give files and you get files. Yep, that's really about it. And so this one goes back to 2010, um, as I mentioned in the start, like a lot of agencies, this is primarily what they do. Like when, when you talk about ICAC folks and other agencies, um, the overwhelming majority of law enforcement ICACs, at least in our area, this is their bread and butter every day, peer to peer file sharing cases, because the volume of them is significant. <laughs> that's the, that's a, an understatement probably like if people were to actually know the volume of, of stuff that gets transmitted through peer to peer, um, it, uh, you know, might blow your socks off a little bit, but this particular subject, I call him a target at first, I was able to connect to him and obtain downloads from what he was showing to have publicly available in a shared folder on this platform. So I was able to connect to him and, download the material that he had in this shared folder. Now that material is child sex abuse material, images, videos, those kind of things, really terrible stuff. And so at this, and when you say like, it is not just common, it is, I mean, an, an an amazing amount or an unbelievable, I won't say amazing because it's not in a good way or a positive way. It is an unbelievable amount of stuff like related to child exploitation on these platforms. Yeah. I always, when I do presentations for, you know, schools or, you know, churches or the community or whatever, I, I sort of put it in this term, like in, in my city alone, I could run easily 
two of these a week, every week for 10 years. And I would never run out of targets. I mean, it's, it's that prolific. It's, it's an epidemic. And so if you compound that to every city, you know, that surrounds us, every city in the state, the states next to us, all those cities, all those counties, the volume is, it's tremendous. And so that's why the majority of agencies that have an ICAC, like the job we do, that's their primary focus. In a lot of places, they do, their bread and butter is peer-to-peer and cyber tips. And that will keep you busy, (laughs) I mean, a long, long, long time. Long time. And quite honestly, like, it's not because, you know, it's, it is often very easy to find these offenders, um, despite what they think they're making themselves anonymous. But the other side of that is, as we have talked about now, especially with Dr. Burke, you now know that, you know, if we're talking about a quote unquote, only child sexual abuse material offender or child abuse material offender, then we're talking about particularly in these kind of cases, probably the likelihood of an undetected hands-on offender as well, right? Yes. You know, we're seeing such a high a number. So if we go after these offenders, we're finding that they're also hands-on and, you know, if they've had access and opportunity. Yep, absolutely. And so this one, um, you know, once I was able to connect and I knew that I had, I had connected over 300 times over a period of time with this specific target. And so the downside of our job is we have to go in and we have to view every one of those and we have to determine, are those a violation of our current statute and are they chargeable or non-chargeable? Because not everything that we get is always chargeable. And so once those determinations are made, you know, we send off our legal process and all the things that we have to do. And so to put into context so that people understand that, you know, we're looking at a number. We don't know who the person is. Once we get the resolution back to where it belongs, it takes us to typically a residence, right? A house, an apartment, a condo, whatever. It doesn't put us to the person that's behind the keyboard. That's why we get paid the big bucks. That's why we have to go and ferret out who lives in that house. You know, sometimes it presents some challenges if there's eight people living in one house and there's only one computer. Obviously it uh, presents some challenges for us, but um, those are some of the things that lead up to this. And so the twist on this case, which was really kind of bizarre was um, it resolved back to my city. It actually resolved back to a neighborhood that I'm very, very, very familiar with because I have family members that live in the exact neighborhood, like very close to this individual's residence. And so I had that, oh crap moment. And I was like, okay, so let's see where this goes. And, uh, you know, we begin to do our due diligence. We're looking into things and, you know, all the things that go up to what we've discussed many times before we go and execute a search warrant. So the family member that I have that is living in this particular area knows just about everybody been there forever. And so I had kind of casually mentioned like there was a, there was a vehicle parked at the target location and it looked like it was going through like a, like a restore or remodel, you know, doing, having work done on it. And so I just happened to, Oh, Hey, what do you know about this guy? You know, that's a cool looking vehicle. And so I kept hearing 
oh man, he's a great guy. You know, he did all these cool things. He's a, you know, he's an older guy, but back in the day, he, you know, he was a coach and he was, you know, doing all these sort of things. And, and I'm just thinking in my head, like, like, okay, (laughs) here we go. Right. And, uh, so I kind of put that to the side. I moved this thing on. Um, and we get to a point where we're going to execute, um, obviously a search warrant. We get the legal authority from a judge to say, Hey, this is what we've done. We've connected, we've downloaded these particular files. They are CSAM related. They are chargeable. Um, you know, so they're saying, wait, this guy is like such a nice guy. He, you know, is a, a mentor to kids and, you know, that's brings up something that we tell people when we go into these search warrants too, right? Right. That one person is in generally involved and almost 99.9% of the time, no one else in the house knows that this is going on. So it's every bit as much a shock to them yep. as it is to, you know, the community around them. And, and so we sort of have to be the bearer of bad news in that case. Yeah, sometimes. Well, this one, because it started in 2010 and the later part of 2010, but it had moved into 2011. And we are basically have identified two people at this particular location. Mr. Brooks, who's at that time nearly a 70-year-old guy, and his wife. And so that does obviously narrow things down. And so just because we think it bears mentioning, it does not necessarily mean that women cannot be offenders in this arena. Um, they definitely are the unicorn when it comes to these specific types, but they're, it's, they're not excluded, right? <laughs> no, I think, yeah, I think what we, you know, as we talked about um, in that episode with Dr. Burke, that there are female offenders. And, and honestly, what we tend to see, well, I don't know, maybe you can take a second to kind of talk with me about this, but what I've seen and what I see a lot more frequently with as far as female offenders goes um, is that they tend to be like the teacher cases, right? Like they are. And when I say teacher cases, I mean like a teacher and a student having some sort of sexual relationship because there's some sort of communication there and sort of a, a relationship there. So we tend to see, I mean, is that your do you agree with that? Do you, I feel like there are more female offenders that we see in the teacher student cases than in these right. kind of cases. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've, I've had my fair share of those as have you. Um, and, and again, we've had a couple of experiences where we've had female offenders more in the ICAC arena online situations, though far and few between primarily yeah, these not very often. Yeah, not very often, but, um, and when you get a hold of one, like, holy smokes, you know, a lot of people are looking like, how did that happen? But, uh, you know, in this instance and with primarily with what we see based on all of our experience and the training we've had, that <clears throat> peer-to-peer uh, file sharing and the uploading and downloading of child sex abuse material is primarily a male-driven case. And so this moves forward. We end up getting a search warrant for the residents. We go to the residents. Um, Mr. Brooks is Although there. We are going to have to talk. We're going to have to do your case one day where you had a female offender because yeah. that's such a, like, that's going to be the off, you know, we never, we never have that. So right. I'll share with you my one female, you know, CSAM offender and you, you can share your 
one female CSAM offender. Yeah, absolutely. That'll yeah. be a, a, a unique episode. Yeah, we'll do a double or something and get them knocked out. But um, on this deal, when we go to Mr. Brooks's residence, uh, he's there. He's by himself. His wife is not at the house. Um, he was actively downloading while we were there. Um, so he had computers running basically 24-7, and they were connecting to other shared um people on the same platform and he was actively downloading file names that are very consistent with the type of material I had already seen, which led me to his front door and the search warrant. And so as we are there, um, you know, obviously we're kind of going through the motions and um, things are being carried out of the house and put into vehicles, evidence and all that. And as I'm carrying a box out of the house, my family member that lives on that in that area drives by and sees me with an armload of stuff. And I have this literally this literal, Oh shit. Look on my face. And I'm sort of nodding my head. Like, don't stop. Don't stop. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Don't stop. And, uh, luckily kind of big eyed, you know, they drive by and don't stop. Thank goodness. Uh, cause that would have been really awkward to sort of have to explain right there on the spot. So as we're going through things, I, I get to Mr. Brooks, kind of pull him to the side. I explain to him, you know, Hey, listen, we're here for a search warrant. And he, he makes what's called a raised just die statement. And so explain to folks that don't know, Brandon, what does that mean? Uh, This is a legal term for when someone makes um, what we would call a, a spontaneous utterance or an excited utterance, something that would be like, we didn't ask this question. We didn't incite this response. It's just said on their part. And because of that, it is admissible in court um, with many, you know, in many times where other things are not, it's just a statement that's said by someone and is, is um, relevant to the case. Yep. And so Mr. Brooks, um, I'm not an attorney, so that is not a legal explanation just my simple cop understanding of the term and that's a very accurate understanding because it's mine (laughs) as well and so when i tell mr brooks we're there for a search warrant um he's like i know exactly what this is about me looking at child pornography right and i'm like well let's go have a little conversation he you know is obviously advised of his legal rights he waives his rights he agrees to speak to me you know without some attorney present and so we have this conversation and as we're discussing things, you know, Mr. Brooks is telling, he's saying these things like he's saying them out loud, not directly to me, but more like as a statement of fact, he's saying, I'm not hurting anybody. It's just me and my thoughts. And so I kind of explain, I'm like, well, no, that's not really an accurate statement. And here's why. And so what we try to make the perpetrators understand is to see this through a different lens, to see this through the lens of a victim, because that image, that video, whatever it is they watch, that visual depiction of a child being subjected to rape or torture or deviant sexual activities or abuse is a complete re-victimization of that child every time it's looked at. Every time so let's, it's viewed. Let's break that down a moment because one thing that you and I see here in, in your detailing of the case that you talk about how he 
admits to not only collecting and downloading, but having a very large collection of CSAM files, right? Yes. And so that's not uncommon, correct? Oh, tell, no. Tell our listeners about that. Yeah, no, this is, um, it, again, it would have probably been a superior question. We could have picked Dr. Burke's brain a little longer if we would have had more time. But there is some correlation with these offenders who collect this material, and they're called collections because they don't get rid of them. Um, they keep them um, for years and years and years and years. It gets to some exorbitant level level where they, there's no way possible they could ever look at all of what they have collected. It's just they don't get rid of it. I don't know if but, it's it's. But a, there's a risk, right? So each time someone downloads, and and what we're seeing is a lot of people are looking for something they've never seen before. So, right. but there's a risk each time they download it or they get it where they'll be caught and obviously, you know, that it's all illegal, thankfully. And so many times they don't want to get rid of it because it was a risk to get it in the first place. So we find these large collections and in his mind, he thinks this is just for him. This is just something he's doing and it's not affecting. And that tends to be something we hear a lot. Like I'm not really hurting a kid, I'm not, I would never, I, I mean, gosh, I'm only telling you something you've heard a bajillion times, right? That someone says, I'm not, I would never really hurt a child. Of course. Yeah. And now it doesn't uh, take away from the fact that he admits to me that he's downloading this material for purely sexual gratification because he masturbates to the images and videos that he downloads. Um, and obviously, like Brandon just said, we know that these tend to become hands-on offenses with something as simple as access, right? Which if they have access, they probably will be hands-on. Uh, but he denies this. He tells me that, no, he's never done anything to a kid, things like that. And so <clears throat> um, based on his downloading activities while we're there, like literally they're executing a search warrant, in addition to what I had already received on my connections with him working proactively, he was arrested there at the scene and he was taken away obviously and taken to the jailhouse. And so as we were wrapping things up uh, for the warrant and finishing what we had to do, this woman pulls up, this adult woman pulls up and she comes up and she identifies herself and she is the adult daughter of Mr. Brooks. And we had a really candid conversation, her and I, um, and I had learned a bunch of new things in just a really short time that I spoke to her. And this was just outside on the driveway. Um, she basically told me she suspected what this was about. And she, I would say very candidly and very courageously told me that, um, he had offended on her when she was a young kid. So right then and there, he flat out lied to me, right? I've already asked him, are you a hands-on offender? Have you ever done this? And he tells me no. And so he doesn't know clearly that his daughter showed up. You know, he was taken off to the pokey and to be booked in. And so I have a conversation with her just very briefly. And <clears throat> she tells me, well, I was, a, I was at a very young age and it happened until I was about my mid-teens, 15, 16. And I said, okay, well, I was like, do you know how it is you know that it ended at that point? And I'm going to read to you 
exactly what she said. I put it in quotes because it was that significant. And she said, because I told him I'd cut his fucking throat if he ever touched me again. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, okay. That's uh, one of those significant moments you're never going to forget. And so um, now, out of fairness, I'll say, yes, she was candid. Yes, she was courageous to tell me those things because she doesn't know me. I'm the complete stranger, right? But the the flip side of it is she said, listen, he struggled a lot with a lot of, he had a lot of demons, alcohol, drugs, things of those, you know, things of that nature for a long period of time. And she said, and then he eventually, you know, kind of kicked it cold Turkey. And she said, this was back in, you know, like the mid eighties. And she said, ever since then, he's been totally fine. Never any problems, you know, nothing like that. No, nothing that she knew that was ever hands on. She now has her own kids, which by the way, she does not allow to go near him (laughs) alone, uh, nor to her brothers or her brother's kids. And so what is it like? We always say trust, but verify, uh, because she obviously has this experience. And so, and that's, that's not uncommon, right? Like, I know, I know we talk about when we do, um, presentations to parents and organizations, but, but this is a very big takeaway for parents listening. Like, that where she said, I told him if he would, if he did this, I would do this to him and he never did it again. That's very common. Like the number of times offenders have said during interviews, like if they resisted at all, I left him alone and went to another kid. Right. Yep. Exactly. So like teaching your kids to say, I, in fact, I just heard this, I presented and someone said, you know, they, they knew of that story of a story where it's similar, where a, a child had been abused for many years. And finally the child just said, I, they didn't know. They didn't say, they didn't know I could say no. And they just right. finally said no. And the guy never touched him again. And it was like this realization, like I can say no. And that's what we want to teach parents to teach kids, right? Yeah, absolutely. Tell people and say no. Empower those kids. Empower your kids. Empower the kids you know, the kids you are around. Empower them to know, let them know that they do have the ability to tell them, get away from me. I'll tell on you if you don't stop. Yes. Absolutely. Um, and so the last thing that I talked about with this adult daughter, uh, because obviously I'm not going to cut up a whole conversation with her on the driveway, right? I want to do it in a more private setting to be respectful of her and her family. <clears throat> but she says something had happened when she was a young kid and she thought she was about five. Um, and she said she woke up the next morning, a friend had spent the night, but the friend was gone. And she said on the driveway, someone had spray painted in gigantic letters on their driveway, pervert, the word pervert. And she said, I never was told why she said, I didn't know, you know, much too young to even have any kind of understanding. And so I thought, well, that's pretty significant. (laughs) Like, um, you know, that's a significant revelation from when you're five or six years old. And so I did a little background check on him and it was information that I hadn't found prior to us executing the search warrant, which was a little weird. uh, But if you think about 
you know, we're very automated. All of our agencies are very automated computers and, you know, even going back in time. But there was a period of time when we didn't have that technology and everything was handwritten. And so those things from an era long ago are on a microfiche somewhere or, you know, just a paper copy somewhere in a warehouse. And so the retention of those kind of records, they're not all as automated as we would all hope. And so I was able to uncover two cases, one from 1973 and one from 1980, which was the incident uh, his adult daughter had recalled where pervert was written on the on the concrete. And so the 1973 incident, he was charged um, and convicted of a charge at that time called sodomy. And so in reading the case, essentially it would equate to our level today of aggravated sexual assault of a child. So that kind of tells you the highest level felony offense we have. Yeah. And back then that charge of sodomy while it was a felony, it was a, what we would call a low grade felony. And so he actually got a deferred sentence for that charge. And it involved a very, very young child, non-family. And so the 1980 case involved a a five-year-old child that was friends with his five-year-old child, his adult daughter that told me, and he was charged and convicted for indecency with a child by contact. And so that's what, obviously something happened. He received another deferred uh, sentence from that. <clears throat> and so, um, you know, that's kind of where it went. And it, it made me understand better why somebody wrote pervert on his, on his driveway. And I don't know that I ever shared that with his adult daughter. She was always very cooperative and, um, you know, even though we were in the situation we were in and he was, she recognized that, Hey, the only person that's responsible for this is him. He did this to himself. You know, he could have walked away and never done this stuff again, but clearly that was not the case. And so this thing took a little bit of a turn. And so at the time, you know, back in 2010, 2011, I had been in the habit of filing cases federally, but even though we charge initially a state case. And so he had gotten arrested by me on the state charge and he made bond. And so he was out on bond, which anybody is entitled to do. And at that point, um, I made all the referral with the case and everything to the feds and he had gotten indicted. And so he was indicted federally and he had a federal warrant out for his arrest. And so it's kind of a funny story. When that happens, this just goes to show those listeners who don't know the big difference between the way things happen on the state side or on the Fed side, it's it's a big contrast on how things happen. And so <clears throat> essentially, we are going to rearrest him. And so he's not at his house in the local city. He owns another property that's probably about uh, two or three hours away, kind of a retirement, um, you know, location house with a bunch of land and that kind of stuff. And we knew about that. Like, you know, it wasn't like he was hiding or anything like that. He split his time between the city where I work and this retirement place, which is where his wife was and had been for a long time, full time. And so 
we're going to go to this other city to arrest him on the federal charge. And so I get with some guys on the Fed side, the three-letter agency, I will remain nameless. And, um, and they're like, okay, so we're driving down there, me and two guys. And I'm in the back seat, and these two federal agents are in the front seat. And so we normally, from a Fed perspective, we do these things very early in the morning. Right, Brandon? <laughs> yeah, very yeah. early. Yeah. I think we always do them as well. Yeah. Very like, early. But crack of dawn early. Like, you know what? It's really super early. And so we're driving. Now we have to get up even really, really early because we have to drive the three hours to this location. And so we decide... In and true, one of our friends, who we won't mention, always complains about how early they have to get up yeah. because they have to walk their dogs first. So right. yes, we, we know how early that is for that person as well. Yes. And so as we're making this drive, uh, we're discussing because I'm like, well, where are we meeting and who are we meeting? Because I know the feds don't do anything small, right? Like we may go make an arrest with two or three people, you know, to get it, get effect an arrest and have no problems. But the feds don't do that. They do it on grand scale with a large number of people like double digits. And so they explained to me that, you know, Hey, we're going to meet up at Rudy's um, and have breakfast at like five o'clock in the morning. And if you don't know what Rudy's is, it's a tremendous barbecue place with a really tremendous breakfast. And so we go to this, um, location. And so as we go in, they're like, Hey, this is your deal. So you have to do the briefing. And I'm like, okay. And I'm thinking there's going to be three or four guys, you know, that are going to help us that are locals. Well, no, there's like 16 guys at this place when we get there. And I'm thinking like, what are we doing? You know, but some of the funny part was the road trip down there. One of the three letter agency agents is I equate him to the guy on the television show, Monk. Have you ever seen the TV show, Brandon? Monk? I have, yeah. So he was he was a super smart guy, super smart, but he had all these little weird things that he did. Like he was putting his gloves on, and they were Velcro gloves. And he was he must be OCD on some level because he's like, undoes the Velcro, does the Velcro, undoes it, does it, undoes it, does it. It, You know, this whole, like, like four times on each hand. And then the glasses, he took his glasses off and they were like, they weren't like prescription glasses. They were like shooting glasses. And so he's like lowering the, the part that goes on your ear, raising it, lowering it, raising it, lowering like four times, putting it on. And he's talking all this weird stuff. And he asked me on the way down there, he goes, Hey, listen, I know this is your case. And he said, but I have a favor I would like to ask. And I was like, sure. And he goes, when we get there and once we have the scene contained, and he said, and we go to arrest the guy, do you mind if I handcuff him? And I'm like, no, I don't care. Like, why would I care about that? And he's like, well, you know, it's your case. And I just want to make sure. I said, bro, I, I don't care. Like you can handcuff him, leg cuff him, you know. I don't care. You can pat him down. You can do all that. And he's like, really? Like he's super excited. And I'm like, yeah. Well, the other guy who's an agent from the same three letter agency is looking at me in the mirror with this like big eyed look. And I'm like, why is that so important? And he goes, well, you know, I've, 
I've never really handcuffed a prisoner in real life. So I've only done it in training. And I'm like, oh. And I, I think for a second, I'm kind of like looking up. I'm like, wait a minute. Haven't you been an agent for like eight years? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what? Yeah. Some, like, <laughs> sometimes we for, we lose track of the the numbers of times we put handcuffs on. and Yeah, it was pretty crazy. Some others don't do it as frequently. Well, anyway, we get to this Rudy's uh, barbecue place. We're having breakfast. You know, there's 20 plus guys there and I do this briefing and I'm like, okay, we're going to go to this location. And I even suggest, I'm like, look, I've got the guy's number. You want me to call him and just have him meet us like at the corner store uh, versus us having to go up there because they're like worried about, okay, though you take the one side, he'll take the two side. He's the three, he's the four. We got this choke point, that choke point, this, 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 all these things. And I'm like, I got a pretty good relationship with the guy. I could just call him, say, hey, just meet me at the store. And I'm like, he'll show up. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen. So we gaggle up there and, you know, we go through this whole thing and we end up going up and into his house and we get him and, you know, he's asleep on a recliner and puzzled as to why I'm down there. And I explained to him, you know, I told you about this. This is the federal charges and that's why there's 20 of us here to Make sure you're aware of that. And, uh, you know, you have to come with us. And so I let this guy do his thing. By guy, I mean the agent. I'm like, hey, he's all yours. You know, pat him down, do a good job, get him cuffed up really nice and comfortable for our three-hour drive back. And so he does. Um, basically, the end result of the case and the story is that he uh, ends up taking a plea agreement um, in federal court. He got indicted on multi-counts. And he received a 20-year federal sentence uh, where he's nice. still in at his today. 70s is, yeah, I just looked him up. He's, he's yep. now closer to 80. Yeah. Yep. So, um, yeah, that's kind of where it ended. It, uh, you know, some of the takeaways, um, I think that, like, his comments, that's what really resonated with me about this case, like, I'm not hurting anybody. It's just me and my thoughts. I'm the only one here. I'd never touch a kid. Well, you have touched a kid, one. And so, yeah. two, it's really all about access and availability. I guess if... On it, it sounds easy to say that, right? For these guys, it, it sounds better if I say, well, no, this is just me and I'm looking at this and it has no real correlation to real life. But, right. I mean, this shows right there. It's not true. That's not accurate. Yep, that is uh, definitely the case. So, you know, the other thing is it's always fun to poke fun at our, our friends over at those three-letter agencies. And and those guys are great friends of mine, and I've told that story a, a billion times. It's a lot better in person because I can, you know, I, I kind of act out what he was doing in the car ride, uh, which I obviously can't do here. But, um, yeah, that's about the end result for that case. So, Good uh, case, 20 years. Um, which is, you know, sadly, we'll probably mention in the next few episodes, you know, that the, the time federally is better than the state. Yeah. Um, and you know, that's one of the sad things people don't realize is how often on the state, uh, probation and, well, you saw that state charges for yep. hands on abuses and he was getting deferred exactly. probation each time. And, you know, again, that was the back in the seventies and eighties, but still for the type of charge that it was like 
come on, let's do the math. But anyway, thanks everybody for listening. We're sorry. It's been a couple of weeks. Uh, we're going to try to stay a little more on top of that, but as everybody knows, this is just a side hustle that we do for education purposes only. We're no, not making any money off this. So job number one comes first and family comes second, uh, or usually family first and job second. But lately here, the job has taken <laughs> a lot of priorities. And so, um, you know, we get to these as quickly as we can, but we do appreciate you listening. Lots more to share. Keep listening and tuning in. We'll see you next time. All right. Thank you for listening to the Catfish Cops podcast brought to you by Brandon Poor and Tony Godwin. For additional information and available resources, please visit our website, www.catfishcops.com and click on the resources link. 